I got to say, I did miss worshiping with you last week. My wife and I were out of town for our anniversary, but it is so good to be back and to celebrate our God together uh, with you. It is a special privilege, and I love that this church is so committed to singing of a mighty and sovereign God. We're going to see this today in our text. Take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. If you're visiting with us today, so glad that you're here. Uh, Please feel free to use the blue Bible that's provided in the pew pocket in front of you. And you should be able to find the text on page 7. We'll be looking today, the study will take us from Genesis chapter 10 verse 1 all the way to chapter 11 verse 9. For the sake of time and because of the difficulty of these names, I'm going to read some portions. And don't worry, I'll eventually have to struggle through all the names. I'm not getting out that easy. But just hang with me because I want you to get an overview of this unique passage. I'm going to start at 10.1 and just listen for the numbers. We're going to skip a a little bit. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Now I want you to jump down to verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. Then verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now, from here, please jump with me down to verse 20. You see the summary of this. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Skip down to verse 31 for the summary. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. Chapter 11, verse 1 is where we'll stop for now. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. The mystery genre has overtaken the world over the course of the last 150 years. It was actually kicked off with Edgar Allan Poe in 1841 with his lesser-known story, The Murders in Rue Morgue. That started the genre. About 50 years later, it would be Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who would popularize the genre through his famous Sherlock Holmes. And his stories are still told today. The recipe for success and mystery was perfected with Doyle as the beginning of every book opens with some type of dilemma, some type of murder, some type of robbery. And then the entire thing will then jump to find out what originally happened there in the beginning. If Doyle 
popularized it. It would be a woman in particular who would actually make it the preeminent genre of our time, and that is Agatha Christie. According to the Guinness World Book of Records, Christie is the most widely read novelist of our time. Over three billion copies of her works have been published. And she is only, or excuse me, she is third in line of most read authors behind the Bible and Shakespeare. Little known fact. But what is it about the mystery genre that grabs us? Something's off, and then we get to journey along to figure out how it got that way. It's this inescapable desire that we have as human beings just to figure out when things go wrong, how they go wrong, and why they went wrong. A similar thing happens here in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. You'll notice from the very first verse that we are in a new section of the book. So Genesis is part of a larger book, the Pentateuch. But Genesis is also divided up into smaller books, most of which are kicked off by the phrase, these are the generations of. Now, when you're looking at this, it doesn't seem to be too mysterious, except for the fact that it says these are the generations of the sons of Noah, one guy. And then as it begins to record the account of this, we have a record not of one family, but of several. In fact, 70 to be exact. And they're different nations. And for some reason, somehow, one family has become several families, and one language has become several languages. In this chapter, we also have the first use of the word nations. That means different people groups with different national interests are now introduced into the biblical story. And the question comes upon the reader, what happened here? How did things end up this way? Of course, you would expect people to reproduce and for there to be families, but why aren't they all one family? Well, this is the story of Genesis. This is the book of origins. It is a good world gone bad. We've seen it over and over again. Remember, take one, God creates a good world, man ruins it with his rebellion and sin, and then he's exiled from the garden, and things just continue to get worse and worse and worse, till God says, all right, reset, let me literally, with water, purge this earth of sinful humanity, and let's start over again. So the flood is a new start. God graciously chooses to do take two with this new family, Noah. And something interesting will happen once again. A good world will continue to go bad. And it's already evidence for us through Noah's first interactions with his family. We saw that a couple weeks ago. It was not the best of starts. And then we see that somehow, even in this genealogy, it continues. And these aren't just biblical questions, friends. These are questions for all of us. I mean, every one of us in the room at some time or another have, have wanted to figure out why can't we all just be one? Why can't we just be one happy family? Why is there war? Why are there competing national interests? Why is it that people battle one another? They clamor for personal position and pride 
at the cost of lives, not just a few, but millions. Why? Another question. Why languages? Why is it that we have different languages and cultures and races? Like, where did that come from? What would be the evolutionary explanation behind that? Or the biblical one? An answer is here. These are things that the Bible thinks that we need to know. This is an integral part of our education as believers. Right from the very beginning, God intends for you to be able to explain and identify how the world went wrong. And since it got a new start at Noah, we've got to ask another question. How did it go wrong again? That's part of what 10 and 11 are all about. It does represent somewhat of a mystery because it starts off with this new setting that seems off, but it doesn't give you the explanation until chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So you get the situation, and then you get the explanation. And so we have our own little mystery here. I would call it the curious case of the confusion of the languages. I think that'd be an apt title for these two chapters. The curious case of the confusion of languages. And to best understand these two chapters, we want to be asking three questions. What happened? How did it happen? And why did it happen? Let's look at what happened. That's what's in verses 1 through 32. This is the account of the scattered peoples. Really, if you give it a title, it is the account of the scattered peoples. It begins or is centered around three sons, naturally Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but he follows it in reverse order. So if you're trying to figure out what's going on here, you see a bunch of names, it's not that hard. Japheth and everybody associated with him, then Ham and everybody associated with him, and then Shem and everybody associated with him. We'll look at them that way as we trace the scattering of the peoples. Japheth, verses 1 through 5, read with me please. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Tagarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodonim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations." Now, this isn't an account of everybody who would ever be born. This is a highly structured account. This is the way that many genealogies worked in the ancient Near East. They weren't exhaustive. They were representative. And you see evidence of that right here from the very beginning with Japheth. Japheth is mentioned first because his line was the least known to the people of Israel. He doesn't get much airtime. He was the coastland peoples. These are what we normally think of as the Gentiles. And so from that... The, the narrator gives us what we should know about them. He gives seven sons. He then will refer to seven grandsons. And as we continue to do our math through the entire account, we're going to end up with 70 different people groups. You're noticing the seven theme? Well, that's just because in biblical thought, seven was the number of completion. In our own Western world, we typically think of ten being a good round number. For them, they like to put things in sevens because God made the world in seven days. What ultimately 
the author here will want us to see is that what has happened to humanity is going to be represented in this account. 70. Everybody. What is true of this people group, of everyone listed here, is true of everyone. And in particular, they have been broken up, they have been dissected, they have been segregated, and God was the one who was behind it all. The first evidence of this of God being behind it all, is actually in verse 5. Now, I do not do this much, so please be kind to me in this. But look at verse 5 for a moment. I want to point out something. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The word spread in Hebrew is actually passive. It's passive. Now, the reason why I'm so cautious right now is because I know that I am not a a Hebrew scholar. I've taken Hebrew. uh, But I just want you to know that I don't regularly go around pointing to our Bible translation saying, well, I think it should have said were spread throughout the nations. Okay? But any first-year Hebrew student, this isn't like rocket science, Any first-year Hebrew student would read that, and they would understand it to be not spread throughout the nations, but were spread throughout the nations. And in fact, every time you see that word in this account, it's actually passive, not active. Now, let me grammar geek out for a moment. What's the difference between active and passive? You remember this illustration from your third-grade grammar book. Active is, I hit the ball. I'm the one that's doing the action. Passive is I was hit by the ball. It's the difference between a walk and a base hit. <laughs> when you get pegged, the ball hit you. When you hit the ball, you're going to walk. So here's the deal. In this account, God is going to make it clear in every one of these generations, not that they just naturally spread all out of their own accord, but in every one of the instances it will be reminding us that God forced them to spread out. He spread them out. The nations were spread. So the Gentile peoples, here's what you need to know about them. They were spread out. What about the next? We have Ham. You should remember Ham, right? (laughs) Uh, Back just at the end of chapter 9, he made his debut, and we saw that it wasn't a very beautiful one. Without rehashing all of the particulars of his sin, we know that he shamed the family, and he was cursed for it. And so we naturally wonder then, so what happens with him? What happens with his line? A special curse is pronounced on him twice, so how does his life unfold? How does his line work itself out? Well, what you'll see as we read it, don't worry, I'll read it for you. But as we read through this, you're going to notice some interesting names, especially if you've read the Bible before. It's going to be some of the uh, usual suspects. Some of the common enemies of Israel will be linked to this line. Just listen to verses 6 and 7, see if you can pick them out. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteka. Now, notice Egypt. You remember them? Were they great friends of Israel? No. 
Uh, they, they were the ones who enslaved them, made them work for them, actually promised their release, and then pursued them to death because they changed their mind. That's Egypt. And then Canaan, you remember them? At this particular point, when this was first written, or at least recorded or rehearsed, For the nation of Israel, they are standing on the banks of the Jordan. They are looking across into the promised land, the land of Canaan. A land inhabited, according to Numbers 13 and 14, with people who seem like giants who would destroy them. Did they have positive, warm, fuzzy vibes about Canaan when they heard that name? Absolutely not. These were their mortal enemies who took over and resided in the land that God himself had promised them. All from the line of Ham. Ham's line continues in verses 8 through 12, and again, no more warm fuzzies because you notice what happens with Cush. Cush fathered, verse 8, Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. So here we have one of Ham's first descendants. And, And what do we know about him? Does he seem to be, at least in the ancient Near Eastern mind, just a great, pious, godly man? No, he seems to be rather intimidating. What clues us off is his actual name. The name Nimrod, if you were to look it up in an American dictionary, would mean idiot or mighty hunter. There is no connection between the two, by the way. But in Hebrew, if you look up the word Nimrod, it means rebel. They see this name, it's just, his name is rebellion. So from the very beginning, his greatness and his violence is put in a negative light. That's awesome that he was a great hunter. The text has no problem with that. But what it wants you to see him is as this dominating, skillful person who knows how to execute death. He knows how to rule. He knows how to reign. He knows how to exercise authority and power. The the impression comes full circle when we see that the first of his kingdom, the beginning of his kingdom, the, the best example of his rule as a king was Babylon. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. But then he goes spreading these kingdoms abroad. Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And guess what else he builds, by the way? He's the one responsible for Assyria. And again, if you're a new Christian and you don't recognize these nations, it's okay. But just know this and just keep it in mind. Assyria is public enemy number two for Israel. Number one is Babylon. Number two is Assyria. These people would constantly subject them to all forms of horror and torture. And all of it's coming from the line of Ham. In this case, Nimrod. Nimrod's just the first son, by the way. Notice the second son, Egypt, in verse 13. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalsuhim, 
from whom the Philistines came. Guess what? It wasn't just Egypt, but the Philistines. That's the group, you know, remember David and Goliath, the big scary Goliath that was like threatening to kill all the Israelites? Like that guy, he came from this group and they came from, and then Kaphtarim. So it's not a pretty picture. If this is a selective genealogy, What's he doing? He's actually including the people groups that they would be most intimidated by, recognizing that something's off in this world. This isn't a neutral genealogy. This isn't like somebody logged on to Ancestry.com and said, Ooh, this is interesting. This is the list of the bad guys, if you will. And you know that this new start went way wrong real early. We only have two sons of Ham. The genealogy skips down to the final son of Ham, his fourth son, Canaan. Verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And now notice what happens here in verse 16. You're not going to get names, you're going to get people groups. And if you know your Old Testament well, you're going to recognize many of these. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zamorites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Now, pause for a moment. These would be the people groups that Israel, shaking in their boots on the banks of the Jordan, would have to somehow dispossess as they entered into the land of Canaan. These would be their enemies. These would be the people that they themselves were fearing at this very time. And it not only names the people, but notice this, it will even give us the geographical details filling us in on the fact that these people occupied the land that God had promised them. Notice the geographical implications here. Verse 19, and the territory of the Canaanites, that's all these groups, extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. Basically, if you knew the map well, and admittedly, I don't know it that well, but I know it enough to know this is the promised land. And they're occupying their territory. And verse 20 ends this way. These are the sons of Ham. Notice it. From one family. Now we have clans, their clans, their languages. Now there's different languages, their lands, and their nations. Competing national interests. We're two sons in, but there's a third one. The third one is of special interest to us because it was prophesied in verse 26 of chapter 9 that Shem would have a special relationship with God or that he did have a special relationship with God. And I, I, I hinted at that last week, but I want to confirm that verse 21 is what they would read with the most interest because this was their people. Again, to uh, speak of our genealogies, you probably wouldn't care that much about my own genealogy, but if it was yours, you would read with interest. This is the one that they're going to read with interest. This is their people. Even the name, by the way, can just look at me for a second. Shem comes from the same word that we use for Semite. Um, You maybe remember your world history, or you look on the global scene, and you hear of people being anti-Semitic right? What does that mean? It means they hate God's national people. Well, Sem is the same word here, Shem. Semite, Shemite. Here, Shemite, this is God's people. 
This is the one that they're recognizing with. And there's special attention that's going to be given to that one of these descendants called Ever. You'll notice that his name comes up at the beginning and then it comes up in the middle. We'll read it, don't worry. But Ever is also interesting because it is the same word from which we get the term Hebrew. It's in the name. If you look at it and if you spell it in English, you'll see it, Ever. And so here we're also like noting like this is our people and this is how they proceed. Let's read it. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Ever, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Horl, Gether, and Mosh. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Let me just pause there for a moment. Everybody knows where this story is going. In chapter 11, the earth will be divided. This isn't the continental divide or whatever, or Pangea. This is the earth being divided into several groups. He's given us a historical marker. By the way, you add it up from the genealogy that follows this account, and it's about 200 years from the time of Noah to the time that the earth is descended into another round of chaos. But Peleg, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Azal, Diklav, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. And notice verse 31. Here's the summary. These are the sons of Shem. And even the sons of Shem, even the sons of Shem have been divided by clans and languages and lands and nations. There's been a segregation. There's been a fragmentation of even the special people of God. And verse 32 sums it all up. These are the clans of the sons of Noah. According to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations, do you mind if I do this? Were spread abroad on earth after the flood. The family is forced into different nations. And so that's why I say this first chapter here in this new book is what happened. What happened? This is the account of the scattered people. So we need to ask the next question then. If this, this chapter 10 is us opening Sherlock Holmes and seeing the disastrous event or the outcome. We now continue to flip the pages so that we can get to the bottom of how things came to be this way. So we answer the second question, how it happened. What happened? That's the account of the scattered peoples. Now we move to how it happened. This is the account of the sovereign Lord. Now, I want to read verses 1 through 9 in, in one setting. But before I do, I want you to be able to hear it the way that the ancient Near Eastern ear would have heard it. And so I need to borrow your your thought for a second so that you can think of this in the right way. If you think of this in an American way, it's just going to seem like a rather jumbled story. If you think of it in a Hebrew way, I think that you'll see uh, the beauty, the intentionality, and the structure of it. Do you mind if we do that? 
Okay. So, to get to an understanding of this, we need to uh, refer back to something that I referenced a couple weeks ago about how the ancient Hebrews liked to tell stories. They had several different methods for storytelling, just like we do. But one of their more famous, one of the more easily recognizable, was that of chiasm, uh, or palistrophe. That's the technical term, if you want to be a nerd about it. Chiasm is probably actually the best term to use because it's the one that you can most readily identify with. That's a Greek word, chiasm, key, X. If you think of an X, you can actually think of the structure of the story because what happens is, like, there's going to be a thought in the story here, and they want it balanced by a thought in the story here, and then there'll be another thought that'll be balanced by another thought, and the main idea is going to actually be in the middle of the story. We're used kind of to the main idea being at the end. Here are the main ideas in the middle. Let me give you an example of the way this thing works. Um, Poetry, uh, American poetry, classic. I don't know who wrote it, but we say it all the time. Roses are red, violets are blue, right? And then it continues. Well, for us, we're setting up a a rhyme. We want to hear it. You know, I love you. Maybe a kid said that to his mom today on Mother's Day. Very creative. Now, the way that the Hebrew would have structured that poem, like in a way that they just would have been really jazzed about, was it would have been roses or red, blue or violets. You would have roses, red, blue, violets. If somebody's listening to this on a podcast, they will have no clue what I'm doing. But you get the X, right? You see it? It meets in the middle. What's in the middle is the most important part. Now, don't worry. I'm going to coach you through this. Let's go back to the Noah story. Do you remember how the Noah story was told? You don't have to read it over again. It's a lot. But remember how the thing starts off? The waters rise. And all through chapter 6, moving into the end of 7, the waters are rising. Then, at chapter 8, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 9, what do you have? The waters receding. You know what the most important part of the story is? Right in the middle. But God remembered Noah. How did we know the whole point of the story? Because all the features of the first half balanced out with all the features of the last half, leading us to look right to the middle at that hinge point where a sovereign God intervenes to save a rebellious people. We know what to look at. Here, something similar will take place. You're, you're going to be listening out for a few things that are going to match one another. For example, uh, whole earth, the term whole earth, you can find it there in verse 1, and language in verse 1, and the phrase come let us in verse 3, and city and tower in verse 4 are going to be matched by, listen to this, city and tower in verse 5, and then come let us in verse 7, and then language in verse 9, and then the whole earth in verse 9. You hear how those terms are matching one another? It would set up a perfect left side of the X, if you will. And and what are we going to be looking for? We're going to be looking for whatever is right at the middle, because that's going to be the most important part of the story. Here, the center point of the story is verse 5, and the Lord came down. Now, with that in mind, let's listen to the entire story. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be now impossible for them Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Do you see the chiasm? I I will break it down in its simplest formats. A, B, C, B, A. A, B, C. This is the center point. B, A. A, section A, opening scene of the story. It's the way things were. This verses 1 and 2. Then you have human deeds, section B, verses 3 and 4. C, Yahweh's inspection. And then the B, subprime, divine deeds as opposed to human deeds. And then subprime A at the very bottom, the way things are as opposed to the way things were. Let's follow it. Opening section A, here it is, the way things were, verses 1 and 2. Now as you get to it, you just need to remember, because people don't read this in little sections, they were reading major chunks and portions uh, what has been going on? What does God want His people to do fundamentally? This is a hard question for all of us, but let's just remember, at least from the Genesis account, what, what, why did God create the earth? Do you remember? Because He was bored? No. It was because He wanted to expand His glory. He wanted to create people who would represent Him. He wanted to be represented. And so He would create an earth, He would create man to rule over it, and this is what He told man. I want you to... In my image, be fruitful, multiply, and spread out over the earth so that my glory spreads over the earth. You're going to represent my good creation through the world. That was in chapter 1. Guess what? Hits the reset button, floods the earth, starts over again with Noah. And what does he do right at the very beginning with Noah in chapter 9? What does he tell him? Represent me throughout the earth. As my image bearer, he says it in chapter 9, verse 1, and in chapter 9, verse 9, you need to spread out over the earth and represent me as a good and wise ruler. That is your job description. And so let's see how they do with that. We've jumped back in time. Now we're going to have an explanation of why things, or how things got that way. Because look at verse 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. He's given the genealogy, and now he's taking us back before the genealogy and explaining to us, okay, well, how did it get to all these different languages and cultures? Well, let's go back in time. There was a time where the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, you pause here and you're thinking, it sounds okay. It sounds like they're moving around. Here they are moving into the plains of Shinar, modern day, or excuse me, what the biblical authors would refer to as Babylon eventually. And and they settle. 
that's okay. I mean, you need a base of operation to expand into the rest of the world. There, there's nothing threatening here. It seems like everything's going okay. But what we're going to discover is that they don't actually intend to obey the command to spread God's glory through the whole earth. They, when they say settled there, they didn't mean set up a temporary base of operation so that we can move into the next phase. They said, we are going to live here. This will become clear. But I want you to remember, friends, please, they had one job. They had one job. Have you ever seen that hashtag on Twitter or on Instagram? Just look it up. You had one job. It's hilarious. Uh, one of the clearest examples that I could give you of one of these memes is actually a picture of a guy who was supposed to be painting the end zone for a Chiefs game, and it says, instead of Chiefs, chefs. And then hashtag, you had one job. There's a whole host of them. This is hashtag, you had one job. You had one job. You represent God by ruling over the entire earth. And look, here's the deal. You just spread out. Just keep spreading out and ruling over all of creation. And what do they do? They park their little behinds in Shinar. And said, all right, this is where we want to live. Section A, the way things were. Section B, notice the human deeds. Human deeds, verses 3 and 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, Paul's here for a moment. This is great. Industry, it sounds like they're kind of ruling over creation. Hey, I'm, look, I'm coming from a family of, I would have been a third generation brick mason. I'm all for this. My dad loves this passage. Yeah, they're making bricks. They're using this tar-like substance, uh, bitumen, they're mortar, they're going to build something. There, there's no problem. It says, you know, verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. You know, there's nothing wrong with cities. God didn't have any problem with that. I hate to reference this, but if you've ever seen the movie Footloose, that the preacher is portrayed in that movie as like cities are evil and wicked. And then Kevin Bacon comes in with his city-type affair and corrupts the whole town. Listen, um, John Lithgow's character doesn't represent the Bible. God doesn't mind a city. There's nothing wrong with the city. But he did want them to spread out because we're going to see that this city wasn't just about them moving on. It was about them staying there. Because notice this, with a tower, with its top in the heavens, and let us Notice this, we're not live for God's glory, but let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You had one job. Represent me and rule over the whole earth. And they do one thing. They commit to representing themselves and staying where they are. Friends, Babel is not about people doing their best to try to make their way into heaven. Sorry to dispel more Sunday school flannel graph lore. But the truth is, they weren't building this thing so that they could get closer to God. They were building this thing in direct rebellion to God. 
They wanted to be God. They wanted to be in the place of the heavens. In fact, most archaeologists would agree that the structure that they built was the Babylonian ziggurat. And it is something of a pyramid, but it's rectangular in shape. And then that bigger rectangle, then has a smaller rectangle on top, and then another on top of that. And the whole point of that structure in that time and period was so that people could actually communicate with the deities and then somehow become divine. They were looking to rule. They were looking to reject God's commands. God said, go. They said, no. That's what Babel's about. And it even makes it clear, and it's disgusting to even hear it said, let's build this tower into the heavens so that, and they just come right out and say it, so that we may make a name for ourselves. It sounds disgustingly familiar, does it not? Let us make a name for ourselves. I don't intend to be crude, but I think it gets the picture across. A depraved heart is little better than a dog that roams a neighborhood marking his territory. He just wants to be known. He wants to be known in his job. It's all about him. He wants to be known, or she wants to be known in her relationships. It's all about her. They want to be known through sports. That's why they practice hard. That's why they work hard. That's why they get up early. They want to be known. They want a name. They want recognition at the job. They may even want recognition in the church. They want somebody to write their name, put it on a plaque somewhere. People will work their fingers to the bone so that some company somewhere will recognize them. When people retire, why? They do it because they want to be known. They want some society. They want some recognition. After all those long, hard years that they put in their time, this is the heart of fallen man. Not that God would be known, so that we ourselves would be known. We're looking to make a name. It is the epitome of pride and rebellion and sin that someone would take the resources that God has given them and then use it in war against Him. It's like the company credit card. God gave them thought processes. He gave them the ability to do industry. He gave them the ability to communicate with one another. And what did they do with the gifts that God had given them? They said, hey, yeah, I'll take that credit card and I think I'll just buy myself a new car while I'm at it. They wanted it for themselves it's Genesis chapter two all over, I mean chapter three all over again. They have this wide garden, they have all these things to choose from, and what do they decide to do with it? So we want to be like God. And they make the world about themselves. And it's not just them, by the way, it's us. And we're going to see what God thinks about such a coup or a rebellion. Look at verse 5. This is the hinge point of the story. Everything now changes at verse 5. And the Lord came down. Pause there for a moment. Do you read and feel the delicious irony in that? They said that they were going to build a tower that reached the heavens. 
and the narrator says, the Lord came down. Like, he couldn't even see this pitiful tower that they were building. He had to come and like zoom in and look on it further. It didn't impress him in the slightest bit. He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, this is amazing because what I want you to behold here is your mighty God and mine in the face of mankind's united rebellion. So what does he think about all mankind joining together in rebellion against him and his plan? Is he intimidated by it by any means? Absolutely not, because the story continues. We're back at subpoint B, and human deeds will now be matched with divine deeds in verses 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all one language. And this is the only, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God said, okay, you've got your plans, I've got my plans. Here's my plan. I'm not going to let you ruin this world the same way your ancestors did. In Genesis chapter 6, all mankind unites in rebellion against God. It's a whole world that's characterized by violence, and it ends up with the whole world being placed underwater in judgment. And God says, nope. I'm going to break up this monopoly of evil right now. Every one of you are going to be split up, and I am going to keep you from being able to unite in opposition against me by making it so that you will unite, at least in part, in opposition to one another. He will make them nations. He will give them different languages that will force them into different places, that will give them different interests, which will cause them all sorts of conflicts from now till kingdom come. By the way, that is the source of all conflicts. It's competing interests. Husband and wife, the reason why you yell at one another is because you want one thing and he or she wants the other. And what's true in the home is true of the world. The reason why somebody would be willing to blow someone else off the face of the planet is because they want something else. It's competing interest. And God now fosters independent interest in the hearts of individuals by grouping them according to languages. He says, you will not unite against me. I will make it so that you will unite against one another. And so human deed is matched by divine deed. He breaks up the monopoly and we move from the way things were in verses 1 to 2 to the way things are in verses 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them. Notice that. It's the same word that we saw, by the way, in chapter 10. Remember when I kept going active and passive and were spread? Remember that? This one, in Hebrew, is very active. Okay, so in English, we've got active and passive. This would be hyperactive. God caused it to happen. That's the stem. God was the one who dispersed them. He's the one that gets the credit. He dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. They weren't going to obey him. They said, no, we don't want to scatter. And he makes it happen. He rules over the nations. Man's disobedience is still under the sovereignty of God. Verse 9, therefore, (laughs) this is funny. Its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So Justin, what's so funny about that? Well, you remember that they said they wanted to make a name for themselves? They got a name, and you know what it was? Confusion. 
Babel means confusion. You know, it still does. When we talk about a baby babbling, we're talking about those incoherent sounds. We don't even know what he's saying. Here these people wanted to be the pinnacle of creation, and they end up with a name like Babel. Did you know that from this point forward, throughout the biblical narrative, not just the Genesis narrative, but the biblical narrative, Babel will be the symbol of all who unite in opposition against God. Confused. They're confused. Uh, The same word, Babel, by the way, is normally translated Babylon in the rest of the Bible. They would be public enemy number one for Israel. But that's also why some of you may have been confused by Revelation 19 and 20 today. Why judgment is poured out upon Babylon, the great whore. It's not talking about an individual. It's talking about the city that stands in opposition against God. All those who hate God and His purposes will one day be judged. They will be thrown down. Everything that they thought that they had by means of wealth and riches and resources will be taken away from them. And it will, that rebellion will be fully and finally squashed one day. Friends, the major lesson for us here is really simple. God exercises sovereignty over the scheming nations. Can I just give like a little micro-application for a moment? Some of you, I love you to death, but you work yourselves into a tizzy by reading the news headlines on a regular basis. And I'm not telling you that you don't need to read the news, but what I am telling you is you need to remind yourself at the end of the day, God still rules over the nations. Why do you think that God would put this story in place for a group of Israelites who were about to go into a nation that could wipe them off the face of the planet? Because they needed to remember that God is sovereign over the rebellious nations. I don't care who the next president is. God is sovereign over the rebellious nations. It doesn't matter what the legislative landscape looks like this year. God is still sovereign over the rebellious nations. So we see what happened. The account of the scattered peoples. We've seen how it happened. The account of the sovereign Lord. But there's a final question. Why did it happen? Why did it go down this way? What is God up to in this text? Here's where this curious case connects with us. There's two reasons why this happened. First, and I would write this down if I was you. I think it'd be helpful. God did this because he was committed to advancing his glory through the earth. God wants you and me to know that He is committed to advancing His glory through the earth. That is still God's agenda. i got to be careful here because I don't want to come across like just a naysayer. And a criticizer of contemporary Christian culture, but I'm going to criticize contemporary Christian culture for a moment. At least for the last 60 years, preachers and authors 
have made a living, I mean a good one, off telling people that God exists for them. That, that God is here to make your life better and sweeter and happier and richer and more fulfilled than it's ever been. And I'm not saying He's not for that. I'm just saying that's not what He's mainly about. What He says here is that He is clearly committed to the advance of His glory across the earth. And if it may be more convenient for you just to park it in one spot, He says, no, you're still going to advance it throughout the entire earth. This is my plan. This is my agenda. You better buy in. It's a Copernican shift. It's one that I'm advocating for you. And hear me well, friends. You need to be advocating it with other believers because they wake up every day thinking that they are the center of the stinking universe. And the reason why I call it Copernican, because when Copernicus first mentioned his ideas to not only the religious rulers and the institutional leaders of the 17th century, when he mentioned it to the Roman Catholic Church, they actually called him a heretic for simply saying the sun is the center of the universe. At the risk of sounding preachery, friends, the sun, O-N, is the center of the universe. And you better get on board with that quick. Because the truth is, your life will not work until this Copernican shift takes place. If you think that your health and your money and your marriage and your kids and your retirement and your home and your career are about you, it will not make sense. But when you start to analyze how every one of these facets of your life exists for the propagation and the advance of the name of God and somehow making Him look good, you can then begin to understand the way life works. I know that's a huge statement, but this is a huge book and it says it all over the place. Practical exercise for you. You know what? I know it's Mother's Day. Do all the, all the stuff you need to do with your mom first. Okay? Do that first. But then take some time to actually walk through the major categories of life and just sketch out what it would look like to live for self versus living for God. What would it look like, for example, I'll give you an example. What would it look like for me to go do my job this week for me versus me doing my job this week for the glory of God? What would it look like for me to parent this week for me, like if, if parenting was all about me, how would that look? What would be some ways that would, and write that out. And then make it look like, all right, what would it look like if for someone it was all about God? I mean, every category, marriage, whatever, I don't care. Your house, analyze it. Because there is a major difference between the two, and God wants to point us back to his commitment to advance his glory through the earth. There is a second lesson. Why did it happen? First, to commit. God wanted us to see that he is committed to advancing his glory through the earth. Secondly, he wanted us to see that rebellion will be judged. And, and that's just the facts. Rebellion will be judged. Every time it happens, rebellion will be judged. As one author said it, we need to lay down the weapons of our rebellion. That's what repentance is, by the way. That's why we tell people we need to repent and believe in Jesus. When we're telling them to repent, here, here's what it is. We're telling them to lay down the weapons of rebellion. 
Earlier, I used the illustration of someone using the company credit card for personal use. Now, let's just imagine you're a small business owner for a moment. You hire somebody to help you out. You give them access to the card, and then they start using it for personal use instead of company use. You find out, what do you do? You fire them, right? You can warn them, but eventually you're going to fire them. Now, let's, let's, let's turn the illustration up a notch. Let's not make it just about a company credit card. Let's say that someone has been trained by the United States military. And they work themselves through the ranks. They're provided all kinds of skills and knowledge and understanding. And then as they eventually work their way up the system, they're entrusted with resources. Not just any resources, but even weapons. And then they decide to use those weapons and those resources to establish their own little kingdom and land apart from the United States government. Tell me, if someone sets up, that's called a coup by the way, someone sets up a coup using the resources that the United States government has given them, what's going to happen to that individual? And rightly so, they're going to be executed. That was a breach of trust. They had one job, and they had totally turned it the other way by making it all about themselves. Friends, you have been entrusted with some great responsibilities. I'm looking across this room. I see beautiful, gifted people, very capable. Some of you are great at communication. Some of you are are very compassionate. Some of you have great resources physically, financially. I mean, it's all over the map, the gifts that are represented in this room. And the simple question that we need to remember here is, am I using these in service to God or service for myself? Because anything less than God is rebellion. God gave you what he gave you for his glory. And so the lesson for you today is to remember that God will punish rebellion. I, I, by the way, let me just be clear about this. If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, listen, I, that's mainly who I'm talking to. <laughs> you're the one that is living life all for yourself. Your relationships are about you. Your pleasure is about you. Your hobbies are about you. Now, Christians, can I just nuance this a little bit? Listen, I understand. I don't think that anybody here who claims the name of Christ that I know is actually staging a coup against Jesus with the gifts that they've been given. I fully believe, I don't want to like overguilt this thing, I fully believe that every one of you that I know in this church who claim the name of Jesus actually are living for his glory. Please don't get the impression like, man, what was his problem? I, I, I have no problem. We're good. But here's the deal. And look, this needs to be true of me as a preacher. Do you ever feel that pull sometimes to do something for yourself and the glory of God? Like, maybe we can mix the two together. Would it not be easy for somebody that preaches to hope that someone would say on the way back, man, that was a good sermon today, as opposed to, what a great Savior today. If it can happen for me up here on this little black platform, how much more so could it also happen for you in your day-to-day existence? I would just say, be careful about those small roots of rebellious pride that remain a remnant in the human heart. Because that rebellion will be judged. But the good news is, and this is our third, fourth question. I didn't put it in the beginning, but I'll add it here. How is it fixed? 
We've talked about what happened, how it happened, why it happened, but how is it fixed? I mean, we've got a mess on our hands here. We still feel these seeds of human rebellion in our own heart. But you know, the cool thing is, and we don't have time to do it today, but as you continue to read through this book, not just Genesis, but the entire Bible, you'll see that this line, this lineage, this genealogy will continue. It'll keep splintering off into different directions, but what the storyline is going to do throughout the Old Testament is keep getting back to this one line. This one line of Abraham, we'll see it in chapter 12. And then it'll be this one line of Israel. And then this one line of Judah. And then this one line of David. Which will make its way all the way to this one line of Jesus. And this Jesus would come as God's son, and he would establish a new race, a new humanity. One people, listen to this, one people united under God. The rebellion that seemed so inescapable would finally be remedied as Jesus would come and he would live the perfect exemplary life that was called for from Adam. He would be a second Adam, a better Adam. And he would have his own progeny. But it wouldn't be physical, it would be spiritual. Anyone who wanted to be included in on his good reign could come into it by simply believing that he was who he said he was. That he died to satisfy the penalty of the rebellion and that he rose again to give us life and hope in light of the rebellion. And all who trust in him and turn from their sin are now placed under him and they become the one people. And you know what the cool expression was of this? This Jesus, he actually, when he ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit down. And we see it as early as Acts chapters 1 and 2. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes and empowers the uniting of the peoples in Jesus. Because they begin to speak. And by the way, tongues, languages, was God's good gift to show that what happened here at Babel was now being reversed. Are those gifts still in operation? No, they died out with the apostles, but they did initially happen so that people of every tribe and tongue and nation would know that Jesus Christ is Lord and that they could again rule under him. You don't like the problem? You you don't like the rebellion in your own heart? You don't like the way the world is? Hey, get in line under Jesus. That's how it's fixed. He's the one that remedies it. And so my admonition for us as a church as we leave this place today is that we would, through Christ, recommit to living for the fame of His name. Let's pray for His help in that now. Lord, we need You. (laughs) We can't just say we're going to live for You and make it happen. I don't think anyone in Genesis 10 or 11 ever set out to just defy you, but it happened. It happens. It happens because we've been cursed by sin, and yet you've remedied the curse. May we remember that, believe that, rejoice in that. And Father, I pray that, Lord, as we remember the resources provided us in Christ, how you've satisfied the penalty of death, 
Lord, through your death on the cross and how, Lord, you've given us the capacity for this life that represents you well through your resurrection and the gift of your spirit, or that we would leave this place today, Lord, excited about living for you and your glory in every facet of our life. Or may this case, may this story, Lord, resonate with us this week so that as we spread out from this place, we would represent you well. And Lord, for those who are still in rebellion against you, Lord, convict their hearts. I pray that even today, Lord, they would be saved, that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust in you. If they are confused about anything, that you would give them the courage to talk to one of our church members or to one of the pastors. Lord, save the lost and supply the saved. Give us victory as we represent you well this week. In Jesus' name.